and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Chris Jones. We all know the cost to human life Russia's war in Ukraine has had. US officials think the number of those killed could be around half a million. But war also comes with huge financial burdens, and that's what I want to focus on today. Maintaining a war for a long period of time is expensive, especially when most of the rest of the world is against you. But has this war completely tanked the Russian economy, or is it actually doing better than you might think? Joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Richard Connolly, Senior Analyst covering Russia and Eurasia for Oxford Analytica and Director of the Consultancy Eastern Advisory Group. Richard, welcome to The Bunker. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. Let's start by painting a a pretty broad picture of what Russia's economy was like before the war. Was it faring well? Before the war, it had been through, I think it's uh, fair to say, a decade of stagnation. So Russia had recovered quite well from the global financial crisis, if we can remember that far back, back in 2009. But then once it got to 2013, growth had pretty much slowed to a trickle. And so the average annual growth rate between 2013 and 2021, or let's take before the pandemic, because that distorted things, was less than 1%. So the Russian economy was not in great shape uh, at the outset of the war. What does that mean for ordinary people? What was life like economically for the average person based on how the economy was before the war began? Well, it wasn't awful if we compare to previous times in Russia's history. So, for instance, a lot of the people in in Russia today and certainly over the course of the last decade would have had a very fresh memory of the 1990s and the early 2000s when incomes were much lower and there was a much higher degree of economic turbulence in the country. And so because Russia had at least experienced a good period of growth in the first decade under Putin, and then a period of slower growth afterwards, they were in a position where most average people had a reasonable level of income. That's an average figure. There were poorer people within that. But even then, the poverty level had gone down over time. It's just that in real terms, adjusted for inflation, after about 2016-17, real incomes had started to decline a little, um, right up until the eve of the war. Um, so it wasn't an awful situation. I don't think it's fair to characterize uh, Russia as a basket case before the war. It wasn't, but it was an economy that was lacking in dynamism, and where most people's growth in incomes had taken place in the first decade under Putin, so from 2000 through till 2008-9. And then afterwards, things, had, as I say, had, had really gone into a period of stagnation. They hadn't gone down, they hadn't really gone very, uh, very much either. And what about when it started this war? As you mentioned there, on the eve of the war, things kind of changed for for a lot of people in Russia. How much would this invasion, as I'm going to call it, because that's what it is, how much would this invasion have cost Russia to lead a military force into Ukraine? Well, I mean, on your invasion point, I think it's it's probably even more accurate to call it a full-scale invasion because they did, in fact, invade in 2014. So this was, yeah. whenever I write about this, I always use the, the prefix full-scale because People would rightly point out that it had been invaded, been under invasion, Ukraine, that is, for for eight years. I think it's difficult to know. Now, I I sort of follow Russia's budget and military spending quite closely. But one of the things that happened in 2022, once the war began, was that the Russian government started to conceal 
to some degree, not completely, but it started to conceal some of the statistics that it had previously made available. What I'm about to say is an estimate. I think it's a, a well-informed estimate because I nevertheless think that the Russian government has given enough information for us to be able to get an approximation of how much it spent. But let's just put it in really simple terms. Before the war, Russia was expecting to spend around about 4% of GDP on uh, military spending in 2022. Yeah. Because of the war, at the end of the year, it turned out that they spent more like 6.5% of GDP on military spending. And if we assume that that difference between what they planned when they hadn't <laughs> expected a war to what they actually spent when the war had happened, that difference is about 2.5% of Russian GDP. So we could, I think, reasonably say that most of that difference was caused by the war. So, of course, either by an increase in the procurement of equipment and munitions for the war, an increase in spending on you know, fuel for armoured vehicles to move, uh, for instance, and food for the troops, and for salaries and for other associated expenses in the war. So I think that that 2.5% of GDP is a rough rule of thumb, I think, way of, uh, it's as good as any for um, trying to understand how much that was. Now, you're probably thinking, well, give me a figure. What does that mean? What's 2.5% of GDP? If we take Russia's GDP at the end of the year in dollar terms, right, at market exchange rates, that would probably amount to around about $40 billion dollars give or take a mm. few billion here there that's not that much <laughs> 40 yep. billion dollars it's quite a lot i'm not saying that it's an insignificant amount it's not trivial but you know it's about half as much as what they were planning on spending on the military anyway so this is for a country that entered so this we spoke about uh, at the beginning then the condition for the economy in general and for the average person but what i didn't talk about was the position of the state now the state entered the war in very rude financial health right russia had the russian state had the lowest level of public sector debt of the g20 economies it was less than 20 percent of gdp now compare that to the united kingdom where it's 100 or the united states where it's even higher so the russian state itself the government entered the war in a very strong position so to spend an extra 40 billion dollars at market exchange rates wasn't really much now, they've spent more this year because the war has, I think, been even more intense this year than it was last. And they've mobilized more men at the end of last year. And they've begun to procure more equipment, so tanks and munitions, long-range missiles, etc. So this year, they look like they'll be spending around about 6% of GDP again. But this year, the we'll get on to this in a minute, but the economy is bigger because it's been growing very quickly uh, by Russian standards. So they spent more this year than they did last year. But again, we were going to put that in dollar terms, that difference between what would have been a peacetime amount of spending and a wartime, you're probably looking this year maybe about 50 billion extra. That initial spending by Russia in itself, as you say, perhaps isn't that much of a blow to its economy. But how much would you say massive corporations pulling out of Russia when those boots first hit the ground played a part in damaging Russia's economy up to now? That must have hit them massively. I mean, you look online and uh, you can see that there are there are certain malls and shopping centers that perhaps don't have those massive brands that were there before trading. McDonald's, for example, was one of the corporations that pulled all of its stores out pretty quickly. So so how big was that impact of corporations and trading partners pulling out from Russia because of this invasion? So the war began at the end of February, or at least the full-scale war yeah. began at the end of February. And then the sanctions were imposed in pretty quick order 
following that. And their impact in the first, let's say, six to eight weeks or even 12 weeks was very visible. Right. So we saw, you know, panic on Russian financial markets. The ruble plummeted in value. Shares plummeted in value. Foreign companies either pulled out or if they didn't pull out, they at least stopped basically producing and they stopped bringing in components that they would have needed for production. They started laying off staff or at least telling them to stay at home. So in that first two to three months, I would say after the war began, it looked pretty bleak in Russia. And part of that, as you say, was foreign firms pulling out of Russia. However, whilst if we'd had this conversation in April or May of 2022, we might have said things uh, look bad and look like they were going to get much worse. In the end, it didn't quite work out as uh, we we might have expected um, at that point in time. A lot of foreign companies left, it's true. But Russian local owners or local management or outsiders went in and took over the management of those companies and carried on basically rebadging them and selling the same products. So McDonald's are still present, not McDonald's the firm, but those restaurants that were run by locals anyway. You know, McDonald's operates a franchise yeah. uh, business model. They're now taken over um, under a new name and they sell identical products with slightly different names. That's true of Starbucks, where you can go into an all Starbucks um, cafe and buy pretty much identical coffee, but under a different name. And what we've seen is this has happened across a lot of the Russian economy. A lot of those Western firms that pulled out have simply had their premises taken over by locals who were used to managing those companies because they were the locals managing them before the war, and they've simply continued doing business. Very often, as as you also pointed out, they've had to reorient their trade flows. So whereas before the war, despite the sanctions of 2014, Russia still predominantly traded with Europe. That's no longer the case. Russia's largest trade partner is now by far China, um, and it's being replaced by some other countries like Turkey. And what's happened is Russia's been able to source a lot of those goods that it used to buy from Europe from other countries. And it did this within, I'd say, about six months of the war beginning. So while she has this exodus at the beginning and you have this sense of panic in the first two to three months, people very quickly adapted. They found new suppliers. They carried on doing business in the way in which they used to by taking over those companies. And this has, in the end, enabled them to adjust and adapt very, very quickly and laid the foundations for what has this year been the fastest period of growth in the Russian economy for a decade if we accept the recovery from the coronavirus in 2021. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people here in the UK, for example, where where I am, would think that things must be absolutely dreadful in Russia because we talk about this isolation in terms of of sanctions and, and as I mentioned, of of corporations uh, leaving. But that's really interesting what you've said there. Just to go back to the war and the funding of the war, how much is it costing Russia to keep this going day by day? I've I've seen quotes that it could be as as high as one billion per day. Is, Is that accurate? I doubt it. As I say, we we, we can look at the budget and um, the amount of statistics that the Russian government has revealed have gone up after, again, that first three months, (laughs) it really was an information black hole. We didn't know what was going on. But since Russia has adapted, they've allowed more statistics to be revealed. So I think they've become more confident as they've become more comfortable. So we are able to, I think, go through the budget and, and, and have a, a, you know, reach a, a reasonable approximation of how much they're spending. And I don't think it's anywhere near a billion a day. I mean, a billion dollars a day would be $365 billion in a year. As I said at the, a moment ago, I suspect 
that if we take the difference between what they would spend on their military in any given year anyway and what they actually spend, if we say it's if we're using dollars um, at market exchange rates, you know, it could be 50, it might be $60 billion. But if it's $60 billion, that is a sixth of the 365 figure that a billion would day. So I would, and, um, but, and this is a crude estimate here, but I would imagine you'd probably be looking at more like $150 million a day rather than a billion. So, you know, a long way off. Uh, you have to bear in mind that Russia, and, and, and the reason I'm catching what I'm saying when I talk about dollars and exchange rates is that it's not really, the, it's a metric your listeners will understand, but it's not really relevant for understanding what the Russian government is going to be thinking about because they don't pay their staff or buy their equipment using US dollars. They use rubles, right? And US dollars can buy a lot more rubles because general cost of living in Russia, the cost of inputs is much lower than a, a market exchange rates would suggest. So actually, the purchasing power of the Russian government is much greater than most people would commonly understand. And this has enabled them to wage this intense, large-scale war in a relatively, from a financial point of view, comfortable uh, fashion. Let's talk about Russia's economy right now and the predictions for 2024, because I was looking at the IMF's forecasts, and they suggest that a growth of, of 2.2% could transpire for, for Russia, whereas Russia's Economic Development Ministry forecasts 2.8% GDP growth in 2023. I'm not sure how much we can trust those figures. As you say, they, um, I imagine, like to bulk the figures up a little bit to make uh, the Kremlin a bit a bit happier than, than it, uh, it would be with some real statistics perhaps. But could you explain what these figures mean in terms of, is this good for Russia, basically? I take your point there. And there's a certain degree of skepticism that we should have about statistics. Although I I, I actually think that that's sometimes exaggerated in the case of Russia. Their statistical agencies are largely operating in the same way that that ours do. In fact, they spent many years importing the practices that we have. And when I say we, I mean, you know, Western countries in the OECD in importing those very same statistical practices. It's very difficult to just change that overnight. So um, there's a lot of very professional people involved in the gathering of statistics in Russia. So I, whilst I think we should always have a natural degree of skepticism when governments tell us anything, I don't think they're as far off as, as, as you might think. But so that, I say that at the outset. The IMF. Now, the thing about the IMF is what's interesting here is how they revise their forecasts as the year uh, over the last 12 months. Now, a year ago, they said, well, we think that next year the Russian economy will grow at a very slow rate. And then they revise it. So actually, we think it's going to grow a little bit faster, maybe 1%. And then the most recent one is, well, now we think it's going to grow at 2.2. It looks more likely that Russia is going to grow in excess of 3% this year. So even the 2.8 figure that the, the Russian government used is quite dated. Russia's economy at the moment, its big problem is not lack of growth. Its big problem is lack of people to fill the jobs that are being created because growth yeah. is much faster than in anticipated. Which is to say Russia's problem is overheating of the problem, not uh, underheating, you know, not, not sort of weak, anemic growth, which, of course, was the problem for a decade uh, almost before the war began. So you know, to answer your question, the Russian economy is doing very well at the moment. And the reason it's doing very well is because they successfully reoriented their trade flows last year away from Europe to these non-Western 
trade partners, which enabled them to bring imports, uh, uh, you know, uh, bring imports um, back to pre-war levels. They initially plummeted in the first three months of the year. And then because the state has been spending so much money on the military, on the war, but also on some different support mechanisms to provide support to the economy whilst it's been subjected to these onerous sanctions, all of this has led to an economy that has experienced a big injection of state demand, which had been absent in the previous sort of 10 years. Because the Russian government before that, I I mentioned at the beginning, it had a low level of state debt. That's because it was very cautious. This was the equivalent of a friend that might go out and never spend more money than they've got in their pocket, but would never borrow on credit. Well, the Russian government was like that. That's why it had a low state debt to GDP ratio. And that has meant that over this last year, 18 months, the fact that it's been spending has actually had a stimulative effect on the wider economy. And that's why it's doing as well as it is. Is that a surprise to you? You know, when you look at countries that launch full-scale invasions, the burden of cost of of keeping that war going can sometimes be massive and really damaging to economies. So is it surprising to you that, that Russia is doing as well as it is economically at the moment? Yeah, I think this, this, the first point to make on this is that it had a, it did experience a recession last year. And any country that experiences a recession usually has a nice year the year after. It's a recovery period. So you're growing from a low base. So that helped. You, I expected that Russia would do better than most forecasts had forecasted at the beginning of the year. So people who said the Russian economy was not going to grow at all, I thought was, I thought that was perhaps too pessimistic. I have been quite, I have been surprised nevertheless that it's reaching what looks like it might be in excess of 3% this year. I was expecting more, maybe somewhere between one and two. So it's definitely doing better than I thought that it would. Where I think it's done best has been in how it has adjusted to some of the sanctions that were put in place. So those sanctions that prevented it from being able to import certain goods, the fact that it's been able to adjust to that, to, to source these new trade partners, these new, new supplies of goods, that has surprised me. Um, I thought that they would do it, but I thought it would take longer and I thought it would be more expensive. But in fact, they did it very quickly within a matter of months. Uh, and they're still buying a lot of goods that they used to buy. You know, you mentioned YouTube and empty malls where you could go on equally on YouTube and go to the malls that are full and have a look in some of the shops and still sell, see them selling goods that shouldn't be sold in Russia. And one of the reasons is for that is because the Russians quickly after the war began put in place a policy called parallel imports, which basically enabled anybody, if you could get hold of, let's say, an Apple computer and bring it into the country illegally, the Russian government wasn't going to monitor whether or not you were adhering to you know, intellectual property or paying any royalties to the owner. They said, forget that. We don't care. As long as you can get it into the company and put it into the shops, you can do what you like with it. And that's enabled a lot of savvy, entrepreneurial-minded Russians to get hold of goods through other countries and bring them into Russia and sell them at a higher price than they used to pay before, but nevertheless at a price that still a lot of people can afford um, and put them on the shelves. It's meant that Russia's shelves have been full. And that has surprised me. Um, it, It has to be said. So the Russian government's also performed well. And I think this is a point worth making here. A lot of Western sanctions have been designed to restrict the inflow of oil and gas revenues. And we had a bit of success about a year ago in doing that, although that success has diminished uh, very quickly. But actually, where if we look at the real success story for the Russian budget, it's not been oil and gas revenues. Last year was a record year because of all of the, because of the geopolitical tensions, which drove up the price of oil and gas. 
Actually, what Russia, the Russian government has been really good at is taxing economic activity outside the oil and gas sector. And that now accounts for the majority of tax revenues in Russia. And that's meant the Russian government has been a lot more resilient under sanctions and therefore has been able to keep make this, this strong contribution towards driving growth elsewhere across the economy. You mentioned the budget there, and, and Russia has just announced a, a budget of sorts for, for 2024, and it, it looks like there's a historic amount of spending going towards the military. From this, can we assume that Russia expects to be able to have the ability to fund this war in Ukraine for a pretty long time? Yes. If you look at the budget, number one, it's a record amount of expenditure full stop. So they're yeah. looking to spend nearly 37 trillion rubles next year. They've never spent that much. So, you know, this year they spent, they look like they'll be spending about 32. So that's a big increase, you know, 32 to 37 trillion rubles. And a good portion of that is to go um, on towards military spending. And then the budget for the next two years suggests that they want to keep it just under that level. So, what they're saying, you know, politically with this budget is we're going to increase spending on the war, we're going to go up a gear, and we're going to keep it there. And still, this budget assumes a really tiny budget deficit and still retain the ability to go up another gear if they need to. So the politics, the political signaling that we see with this budget is of a country, uh, of a Kremlin, saying that it is determined to wage this war at a high level of intensity and it will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. And, and this is important, not only wage the war, but also rebuild, reconstitute its battered armed forces and expand them to a level that will be 50% larger than it was even before the war so that Russia is prepared for a long-term confrontation with the West. So this budget isn't just about the war with Ukraine. This is a budget about a confrontation with the West more widely. I suppose then, therefore, a question is, is this war going to be a case of who runs out of money first or who loses access to, to funds first? For example, you know, if the GOP gets into power in the US, a massive aider of, of Ukraine, if, if the GOP gets in charge and Trump has his way, potentially they then stop the funds that they're sending to Ukraine, because that's something that the GOP have been campaigning on for, for quite a long time. So does this war, as it goes forward, look more and more like a case of who's going to run out of money first? I mean, I think having the ability to finance a war is one of the, the most important pillars of war fighting. If you can't afford it, then generally speaking, um, you're, you're going to run out of funds and therefore you won't be able to pay men and you won't be able to buy materials. Yeah. So that's always important in any war. If we look at Russia against Ukraine, Ukraine has since the, the outset of the war only been able to stay in the fight because of its access to external aid, uh, large sums, principally from the United States, but also from EU and the UK partners as well. Yeah. Should that run out or should it even go down by 50% at a time that Russia is increasing its expenditure, then, well, you could see the preponderance of men and material that you can buy with that money is going to, and I think has already gone in Russia's favor. I mean, you mentioned then that the Republicans um, uh, oppose this. I mean, generally speaking, I think the majority of Republicans, both in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, still support aid to Ukraine. The problem is, is that this very small, but nevertheless very influential part of the Republican Party yeah. want to stop it entirely. And that's put a block already on funds. If we look at the amount of military aid that is being released to Ukraine, it is, being, it is slowed down to a dribble since early spring. 
So we're already there, and they're about to go from a dribble to nothing unless a funding agreement can be reached. So the, the you know the outlook from Kiev is extremely bleak at the moment at a time where the Kremlin is saying, and now we're going to spend more money than we've ever spent on this war. Um, we're going to keep it high, and we could also go up if we need to in the future. So this isn't the only aspect of a war. There's other things that are important, morale and your, your will to fight, um, your ability to fight, but money is very important. And as things look at this point in time now, the pendulum seems to have swung towards the Russians. And the only way that's going to stop is if the Western supporters of Ukraine can agree a long-term sustainable flow of large volume of funding. And as I say, that's not, it's not a question of looking to the future and saying it might tail off. It already has tailed off. As I say, it looks very bleak from Ukraine's point of view at the moment. And that's probably a, a good place to leave it there. Richard, thanks so much for your time and sharing your expertise with us. Thanks for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, why not make our Christmas dreams come true and back us on Patreon? Just £3 a month gets you access to all of our episodes ad-free and the opportunity to get your hands on some of our merchandise. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from The Bunker. Bunko Daily was written and presented by Chris Jones. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Oh,